Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com. Happy good morning, everyone. Um, hey, uh, I... I guess I don't need, really need to introduce myself, but I will again. I'm one of the pastors here at Missio Day Uptown. So excited you're here. Um, and really excited we have visitors. I am going to warn you, uh, this sermon's a little bit different than what I normally do. You know, typically we have our, our, our sermon that encapsulates one major point, and we really land on that, right? This morning, what I'm doing is I'm actually setting up a longer series with Exodus, and so there will be some points, but it's not going to be like a major land. You're going to feel pumped after this, so I apologize. It is going to be a lot of information. Um, but what I want to do, I mean, so we're exploring the entire book of Exodus over these next few months. And so I really want to set us up well so that we can sort of see the ways in which the author um, sets up certain plot lines, uh, the way in which the author uses different tactics in order to develop that. So hopefully you'll come away with a little bit more information on how to read some of the Old Testament that you typically avoid. Um, but uh, if not, you might get a good nap in. Either way, right? Yeah. Um, hey, let me go ahead and pray, and then we'll jump into uh, my sermon this morning. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you uh, for our visitors uh, from Fort Wayne. Uh, I pray, Lord, this morning that your words are remembered, not mine, that I'm about your glory, not mine, and that this morning we are about the name of Jesus, not the name of Messio Day. So, Lord, I pray that you help me to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Your son's name I pray. Amen. I will skip over all my Indiana jokes um, in the sermon. I didn't really realize you guys are coming, so <laughs> thank you for six of you that thought it was funny. All right, um, I have a question for you. Have you ever met someone who activated you in something that was maybe already in you but not fully developed? Another way to ask that is, is there someone in your life that has brought the best out of you in a particular area, right? Let me give you an example. So Ariel knows this. I grew up in a very, very, very small town. She grew up about 30 minutes from me, also in a small town. Um, and the, the bar for excellence in small towns is honestly pretty low, right? Um, and being someone who did peak in middle school, um, that was academically, not socially, just to be clear. Uh, there was a little bit of a hype around me as I went up into high school, but predominantly because I was in a graduating class of 37 kids, right? There's got to be one smart kid, right? Um, and again, this was all because of my academics, not for anything else, right? Now, there was this, as I went to high school, there's this notoriously hard English teacher. Her name was Mrs. Roll. Now, Mrs. Roll had heard some of the hype, uh, and so she knew I was, who I was coming in right? And she was really excited. And let me tell you, I did not live up to the hype almost immediately. My very first paper I wrote for her, I didn't get a grade when the other kids did. She's like, Jimmy, just so you know, I called your mom and your dad. Um, they're both going to come in today after school. And I was like, oh my gosh. And so I come in, we have this conference, and she was just like, Jimmy, I just, I had so much excitement for you, and this is like really disappointing. She's like, you got a B. And I was like, come on, like B is not that bad. But she's like, um, no, I, I expected more of you, right? Now, let me tell you this. Most kids would have been crushed by this, would they not have? And I was just like most kids, right? I, I was crushed. It killed me. But it started a relationship where Mrs. Roll pushed me as hard as she could in order to refine in me some skills that I already had or some, some potential I already had. And let me tell you, I am so grateful for that relationship today, right? 
C.S. Lewis, in talking about friendship, hit on this idea, and he said it this way. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights that my own, than my own to show all my friends' facets. Hence, true friendship is the least jealous of loves. Two friends divide, delight to be joined by a third, and three by a fourth, if only the newcomer is qualified to become a real friend, right? Like, we activate in one another different attributes that are already there, right? In ways that maybe other people are not able to do so. See, being social beings, we often have aspects of our personality and skills that are activated by encounters with others. And this morning, I want to argue that activation isn't any stronger than when we encounter God himself in relationship, right? Which is why we're going to be in Exodus for these next couple of months, right? We get to Exodus. See, as I was praying about what our next series should be, post-Psalms and post-discipleship, I had in mind some things that wanted to be true for our series. And then as Tiana and I spoke, both of us had pretty similar things in mind, right? We wanted to be in the Old Testament. We've spent a lot of time in the New Testament, and Psalms is in the Old Testament, but, you know, it's a little different than some of this narrative stuff. So wanted to be in the Old Testament, and I wanted to hit on a theme that would be relevant to some of the areas I've heard we've been struggling in, right? One theme of struggle I have heard is lacking in intimacy and closeness with God. It's something that has been brought up over and over. I just feel dry. I feel like things are just sort of fine, you know. Exodus jumped out so significantly to me while I was praying. Obviously, Exodus is in the Old Testament, so it checks that box. But it's not just a random book in the Old Testament, right? It is the most appealed to and referenced book in the Torah, the five uh, first books of the Bible, throughout the rest of the Bible, right? And it is referenced so much because it allows us to really pull back the curtain on the character of God and really get to see what is our God like? Like, who is he? And it is put on full display in Exodus, right? Let me give you one example of a reference from Psalm 77, since we were just in the Psalms. These are verses 13 through 20. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. Here's Exodus. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The water saw you, God. The water saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. And then you guys know this one. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So you guys see, like, often the uh, events in Exodus are referred back to in order to tell us about God's character, right? What does he say? Your ways, God, are holy. You are the God who performs miracles. What God is as great as you, right? And we're going to see this, right? Pharaoh thinks he's God, right? What God is as great as you? Because guess what? Pharaoh didn't part the sea, and Pharaoh didn't survive the parting of the sea either, did he? Right? So we see that God led us through the sea. And intimacy with God, in that next point, intimacy with God doesn't happen unless we have a bit of a glimpse into his character, right? So my desire as we work through Exodus is that we have a clearer picture of God. We have a clearer picture of Yahweh, the one who says, I am who I am, right? But this isn't the only way we learn about encountering God in Exodus, just through knowing his character, See, the Exodus story is great because it follows the story of one particular man, right? Moses. 
who encounters God over and over and over. And in those encounters, he sees God's full power, full mercy, and full character on on display. And what do we get to see? We get to see Moses in the beginning as someone who is scared of the burning bush. Granted, I would have been too, right? To someone at the end who is saying, Lord, show me your glory. Like what happens in the middle there is that Moses encounters God in his power, right? And so I want us in our time, we're going to track the ways God, or Moses encounters God, and we're going to track the ways it changes him. And hopefully by the end of Exodus, I'm going to encourage you to maybe encounter God a little bit more in your lives, right? Now, I want to jump into the background a little bit of Exodus. I know many of you probably know the background of Exodus, maybe even most of you. However, I want to tell you, I became a Christian during my sophomore year of high school. Shout out sophomores. See, some of you probably are. Um, And I had virtually never been in church up to that point, right? And so people, and my church wasn't one that like walked through the Bible, where it's like, we're going to start Genesis, then Exodus, then Leviticus. And I'm glad they didn't because we get in Leviticus, it'd be pretty boring. But, um, but what we didn't do, though, is we didn't really, like, contextualize the stories that we would talk about, right? And so for me, I had a bunch of things that were sort of a bunch of shirts that were hanging everywhere, and I didn't have any hangers to put them on, right? I wasn't really sure what was going on anytime someone would talk about the Bible. And so I do want to go through a little bit of the context for us, just in case we don't really, we haven't put it all together, right? We'll start with a man named Abram. Abram, and don't worry, I'm not like walking all the way through Genesis. This is going to be quick, right? Abram meets God. God tells Abram that he's going to get a promised land and have descendants that outnumber the stars in the sky. God and Abram make a covenant, a promise, a contract in order to solidify this. Abram's name is changed to Abraham, obviously. And then he and his wife, Sarah, have their first descendant, Isaac, right? Isaac meets God. God tells him that he will continue the line of Abraham. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob wrestles with God, right? He's told he will continue the lineage of Abraham. He has 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel, which is Jacob's new name post-wrestling with God, right? So we had Abram, had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had heck ton of sons, right? One of those sons, Jacob's 11th son, is named Joseph. And this is where we'll slow down a little bit. Now, Joseph is Jacob's favorite son, right? And the other, Alex, you're my favorite son. Um, and only. Um, and the other brothers get jealous that, that Joseph is Jacob's favorite son, right? So then Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. And then they tell the dad that Joseph died. Also, Joseph has a multicolored coat. Um, Joseph, (laughs) thank you. Some of the kids are like, what are you talking about? Uh, Joseph is taken into slavery in Egypt. And there he has a couple of, we'll call them ups and downs, right? And he is eventually wrongfully imprisoned. Joseph is wrongfully imprisoned. During his wrongful imprisonment, he interprets dreams of some political prisoners, which is a pretty wild thing. Um, they're actually a, a cup bearer and a bread bearer, um, so they're not really like that political, but they were with one king, so they're in prison. Um, so he interprets the dreams of these political prisoners. One of the political prisoners dies, but one of them gets out, and he goes back to work for Pharaoh. And while he's working for Pharaoh, Pharaoh has some dreams, and no one can interpret. And the, the cup bearer, I think is what it was, was like, oh, I know a guy. He's in prison. So they bring Joseph out of prison. Joseph then interprets the dreams. And what, what does he say? He says, in your dreams, Pharaoh, uh, it's saying that in a couple of years, Egypt is going to have a famine. 
right? And so you need to prepare. What you need to do is you need to build storehouses. You need to build places where you can keep grain uh, and other food, things like that, so that you can live through the famine. Well, Egypt in a few years, what, what happens? They go through a famine, and so, and they, but they already have these storehouses. They do what Joseph had said. And so Joseph is restored into a place of privilege. He actually, he's not only like important to the Pharaoh, the Pharaoh actually gives him a coat of his own. He gives him a ring and he becomes the image of Pharaoh wherever he goes, Joseph does. And while he does this, he also gives credit to God, to Yahweh, right? And so in the Pharaoh, this Pharaoh, particular Pharaoh, fears God. He recognizes that this God is uh, who he says he is. And, and the, this Pharaoh also gives credit to Joseph. Now, the famine doesn't just stay in Egypt. You guys are with me, right? It's, it's a long story. I know some of you have seen the Prince of Egypt, but we're still going, right? Now, the famine stretches from Egypt to where Jacob and his other 11 sons are, right? And so they're starving. So what do they do? They go to the place that has food. They go back to Egypt, right? And it's a long story. I know I've already told a long story, but to keep this one shorter, uh, the 11 sons get tricked by Joseph once he realizes that his brothers are there. And he does it in order to show them that they were wrong, that them selling them, him into slavery was wrong. Um, and so then the brothers cry, Joseph cry. I think they cry. I don't know. The text doesn't say that, but my, my assumption is there were tears, right? They cry, they make up, kind of. And then Jacob and all of his 11 sons move into Egypt. Now, a lot of people sort of confuse the details here, um, and they'll be like, oh, that's rough, because you eventually know the story of the Israelites being enslaved in Egypt, right? But at this point, this was God's blessing. God was like, you are going to starve. You are going to die where you are. This is a good thing to move into Egypt. Now, there becomes exploitative things that we're going to talk about here in a minute that end up leading to the bad situation. But this, at this point, this was good for Israel to move into Egypt, right? And that's where we are when we arrive in the pages of Exodus. Now, sometimes um, the pages of Genesis speed through stories to get through a lot of time, right? You'll, like the Tower of Babel is like, I don't know, like 12 verses or something like that. But the story of Joseph, they, they sometimes slow down in order to show you sort of like importance of a person. And the story of Joseph, of Joseph is one of those slow down moments, right? They don't just like go through years through the pages. They're just like, no, here's a couple of years in the five or six chapters, whatever it is, of Joseph's life. And so it is, if you're reading the Bible front to back and you're like, man, I'm, I'm reading through this Joseph story. I'm taking some time into it. And then we'll get to the pages of Exodus. There's some whiplash because I want to show you the first couple of words, again, that we read this morning uh, of Exodus. So we had just read a whole bunch of Joseph in uh, Genesis. And then it comes to this. Now, Joseph and his, all his brothers in all that generation died. That's it. Like, Joseph, here's a whole heck of a long story, and then Joseph died, right? It feels like a pretty abrupt, uh, abrupt announcement for a, pretty abrupt, or for a pretty important character, right? But I think the book of Exodus, starting with this, and why I started with, now Joseph and his brothers died this morning, is because for two significant reasons. The first is, although Joseph was an important story in the uh, an important character in the story of God's people, he is not the main character in the story of God's people, right? Who's the main character? God is, right? God is the main character. What's it say in Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8? All people, that includes Joseph, all people are like grass, 
and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are like grass. You see what they're saying about people? We don't last long, right? The grass withers and the flower fall, but the word of our God endures forever, right? What is the contrast there? We're not very long. We don't last very long. God, he endures forever, right? We'll get some more of this in a bit, though. And I think the second reason the book starts with this is a, is a reminder that we are no longer in Eden, right? If you don't know what Eden, Eden is the perfect garden. We are no longer in the garden with God, right? We are post-Eden. Now, you're probably thinking, like in your seats, Jimmy, the Israelites are about to be enslaved. We know they're not in the garden, right? But the, the text is actually also pointing to a little bit of garden imagery. And so I want to show you a couple of things why we need this reminder that they're not in the garden, why the Israelites needed the reminder of Joseph's death, that they are not in the garden. Um, let's uh, go back to the verse. It says, so after they died, it says, the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. What do you guys hear echoed here? Is there anything that comes to mind? If it was Genesis 1, the, that's the right answer, right? What does Genesis 1 say? The creation story in the garden. It says this, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. So you guys see the common language there? God's blessing is for people to, to be fruitful and multiply, right? And then we fast forward to Exodus, and even though we're not in the garden anymore, God's blessing is still on them. They are being fruitful and they are multiplying, right? So we get what I would call and what others have called a hyperlink. You guys know like in an article, you guys probably don't read articles, right? But in an article, you're like reading through and it'll be like someone's name is like blue and you can click it and it goes to another web page, right? Um, that is a hyperlink, right? And so the scriptures are just full of these, and we're going to talk about these in a minute a little bit more. The scriptures full of these hyperlinks. The language here in Exodus 1 is intentional, They want you to remember the garden. They want you to remember God's blessing on the people, that they are being fruitful and multiplying, right? But that's not the only way we see the garden referenced here. Now, stick with me on this one because this is kind of, it can get a little weird. (laughs) This is a great, like, foreword for something that's important, huh? But this is really, really important. Uh, So I think sometimes what we miss, not sometimes, every time, what we miss in reading the scriptures in English, granted, I, I can't read Hebrew, so I'm not saying go home and learn and read Hebrew, but we miss a lot of things in the original language of Hebrew. Uh, so sometimes there's this really important tactic that Hebrew writers use where they use similar letters um, and even like, so they'll take a word, say it's garden, And then they'll have another word that also starts with G, starts with N. Those are our English letters, obviously. They have different letters. Uh, And then they'll sort of put other letters in the middle. And it's actually a reference to garden sometimes. Or they'll take words like the word for snake, and some other words in Hebrew are just snake backwards. And so it's like maybe a, a thing that doesn't have any, like, moral standing. It's like, I can't remember the word, honestly. It's like, say Pharaoh was snake backwards. It's like Pharaoh doesn't have any sort of, like, moral to it, morality to it, but snake, back, snake does. And so there's a level of like them imputing some morality from the snake onto the Pharaoh. Does that, does that make sense at all? Okay, so what happens with garden? So the land, 
let's, let's say this. The land that the Israelites inhabit in Egypt, so they move into Egypt, right, when Joseph um, gets them land, the land that they move into is called Goshen, okay? Now, Goshen comes up a few times in Exodus, uh, but what do we know about it up to this point from Genesis? We know that Goshen was somewhat close to Pharaoh's court because that's where Joseph lived. Uh, we know that Goshen was also some of the best land in Egypt. So for some reason, Israel got to inhabit some of the best land of Egypt. We also know that in some way, and it, it's not really unclear what it is because it's close to Egypt, but it's still set apart from Egypt. So Goshen is somehow set apart from Egypt. So there's already some symbolism about the land you're seeing, right? It's good land and it's set apart, and it sort of says something about the people. But what also, and this is a tactic I refer to, what also is true is that the word Goshen is the same word for garden, but it has one letter right in the middle of it. So it's almost, again, their English letters and, our, and Hebrew letters are a little bit different, but it's sort of like if the word was just Garshan. Uh, and it's a direct reference to the garden, right? See, if the Israelites were aware of, of what God had said to them and Abr- said to Abram and said to some other people, they would know that they were going to actually be enslaved at some point. God had already warned them about this. And so there's some intentionality where God is like, you're going to be enslaved, but I'm still going to have a garden for you in the midst of the wilderness, right? You guys following me? With that being said, we are then both being reminded that the garden is still intact in some ways, but that we're we're also reminded that we're not in the garden anymore, right? So we have both life in the garden and death because we're not in the garden, right? This is really important, particularly in the first movement of Exodus, because the echoes of the garden of creation, of the fall, are littered throughout Exodus. And they're really important hy- hyperlinks, and they do these things for a reason, right? And, and the question becomes, then, like, why, why do they want to sort of, like, remind us of different things in the garden? Well, if uh, you're anything like me, uh, you love Shrek, right? So let's talk about Shrek for a minute, because, like, how else are you going to talk about Exodus without talking about Shrek, right? Um, so you guys know how in Shrek, have any of you not seen Shrek? You can be honest. Oh, good, good. Thank the Lord. Um, Okay. You know how in Shrek, the whole premise, so obviously he lives in a swamp, um, but the whole premise is they live in this sort of world where fairy tale creatures exist, right? Right? And so what they do is they make references to these different fairy tale stories, and they either, either build off of these stories or they slightly change them in a way that would grab your attention and even create some, like, humorous situations, right? And so what Shrek has is he has hyperlinks to different fairy tale stories, and it helps create some sort of interesting situations, right? Well, the Bible does the same thing, but in reference to itself, right? I already referred to this, but to establish common language and accentuate common themes, the whole Bible, but particularly the Torah, uses tons of echoes and hyperlinks to other passages throughout God's redemption story to highlight different things about what's important about the text, right? It will use words, similar characters, similar settings, motifs, uh, in order to call back to other stories to layer on meaning to particular interactions, right? So our reference of the Israelites being fruitful and multiplying, again, was a hyperlink back to the creation story. Right? And so what I want to do for the rest of our time is I want to look at some hyperlinks in our first two chapters 
along with a few typical characterization tactics, to set the stage for the rest of our exploration of Exodus. And we're going to do that by characterizing two main characters that we see in here. Those characters are going to be Pharaoh and Moses. With me? Okay. So, let's, and honestly, I'm not that far from the end. So if you're getting sleepy, that's okay. Um, first, let's characterize the role of Pharaoh in the first movement of Exodus. Now, I said characterize the role of Pharaoh instead of just Pharaoh himself, because we already saw a Pharaoh. Now, that good Pharaoh we read in the scripture, he died, right? And so what we do is we have another Pharaoh, sometimes they call him king, who occupies the position. But then, actually, in uh, chapter 2, he also dies. But he is very, very similar to the one that ends up occupying the position. And so both of them are sort of able to be categorized together. They both represent a lot of the same things in the Bible story. So let's go ahead and look back at the Pharaoh. Uh, Exodus 1, 8 to 10. Then a new king, a.k.a. a new Pharaoh, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Uh, I'll try to do the deep voice, Kevin. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them. I can't keep doing it, sorry. Or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country, right? Now, typical, yeah, like this guy's bad. That's pretty easy, right? But there's a hyperlink in here. Let's look a little bit more closely. How does Pharaoh want to deal with the people? He wants to deal with them shrewdly, right? Now, what else, how else can we say shrewdly? You could say wisely, craftily, cunningly. Is there anything that's coming to your mind right now? Some of you may be, right? Let's, yeah, let's look at Genesis 3. I think you said the right thing, but I'll, I didn't actually hear you. Sorry. Um, look at Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals in the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any fruit in the garden, right? This isn't an accident, y'all. We immediately get our new Pharaoh being set up as the serpent, as the anti-God, as the deceiver, right? You guys see that? Okay, how else do we see him categorized? Now, Pharaoh is afraid of the Israelites, right? The immigrants, the foreigners. So he puts slave masters over them and works them tirelessly in order to slow their multiplication. Yet God's blessing continues to be with the Israelites and they continue to multiply and spread. So... As a result of that, and we didn't read this part, he asks the midwives to kill any babies that the Hebrew women have. But the Hebrew, or sorry, the, um, the midwives, they fear Elohim, they, is the word that they use for God. They fear God over the Pharaoh. So they did not do this. And they deceived Pharaoh, the deceiver. And Elohim's blessing, once again, continues to be with the Israelites, and they continue to multiply and spread. So, Pharaoh again, being frustrated that he's thwarted twice, orders that all baby Hebrew boys, what? Be cast into the Nile to die as they are born, right? You see, God's blessing for his people, starting from creation, was again that they be fruitful, multiply, and spread about the earth. So when Pharaoh opposes this exact thing, when his whole goal is to oppose the fruitfulness of God's people, what does this tell us about Pharaoh again? It again shows us that he is the anti-God, opposite of what God stands for, right? See, death flows from the Pharaoh. Life abundant flows from our God, right? Fear of the foreigner, fear of the other flows from the Pharaoh. 
Our God protects the foreigner, right? He protects the migrant. Y'all remember Hagar, the Egyptian slave, right, who Abram marries because he doesn't believe that God is actually going to bless him and Sarah with a kid. What What does Sarah do when Abram and Hagar have a baby? She gets jealous, and they send her out for her to die, right? They know she's going to die. Like, it's very clear in the text. She's going to die. And yet, who saves her? God does, right? And what does Hagar call God as a result? The God who sees, right? So, the, so God is the God who sees. And yet, the Pharaoh, he's threatened by a people who have no intention of making moves against him, right? So we are set up with our main antagonist for the first, move in, move, first movement of Exodus, the Pharaoh. He's afraid of the other. He's opposed to fruitfulness that doesn't directly benefit him. And he's a murderer, right? He is the anti-God. And yet, as this is happening, we have another character brewing, right? One you guys might know a little bit better. And the text jumps right into the characterization of Moses. Now, immediately when Moses enters the story, we have a hyperlink. Uh, Another one, which is really exciting. Now, Moses is born at the time that they are throwing the firstborn babies into the Nile, right? So his mother devises a plan. Let's look at chapter 2, verse 3. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Okay, it seems like a pretty basic thing. Why is this important? This is the exact language that um, that was used when Noah was building the ark, right? And so this is a, a hyperlink to the ark. See, Moses, just like Noah, is being selected as a righteous remnant, one who will be responsible for carrying on the name of the Israelites. And and subsequently, because he's carrying the name of the Israelites, he puts God's full power on display, right? The hyperlink is giving the Jewish reader a foreshadowed understanding of God's involvement in the story, right? Now, besides the hyperlink, though, we do see two particular instances of Moses' characterization that are critically important. Some of my hearing just went out in my right ear. That was weird. You guys hear like, you ever know when you, yeah, so, sorry. That's a little distracting. Okay, two characterizations for Moses, and then uh, I'm almost in my seat. The first comes in verse 11 and 12. One day, of chapter 2, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. So the story, if you watch Prince of Egypt, this is just something for free. If you watch Prince of Egypt, they, lo- they like love to fill in like how Moses finds out that he's a Hebrew, right? But the story doesn't actually give us any of that information. All it literally says is he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. So all of a sudden we know that Moses knows that he's a Hebrew, right? Even though he grew up with the Pharaoh. Looking, uh, looking this way and that way and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Okay, what do we learn about Moses here? Despite growing, like I said, despite growing up in the Pharaoh's household and even being indoctrinated against his own people his whole life, Moses cares about injustice for his people, right? We actually also have some echoes here of another story in Genesis, and that's Cain and Abel, right? Moses, unlike Cain, decides that he is his brother's keeper, right? And yet, his actions lead to him murdering someone just like Cain, So in some ways, Moses here is an anti-Cain and an echo of Cain himself, right? And in this murder, because Moses murders someone, the Israelites actually reject Moses, right? 
a little bit of a consequence of what he has done is his rejection by the Israelites. And so, just like Cain, Moses flees east, and he finds himself in a place called Midian, in the wilderness, at a well. And then this is the second way he's characterized. And when there, we didn't read this part, but when at the well, there are these seven sisters who are trying to get water for themselves and their animals, but these uh, shepherds come in, and they threaten the women. And again, Moses, a man of justice, stands up for the women, saves them from the shepherds, and provides them water uh, for them and their animals, right? So we have two instances of Moses being justice-oriented and liberation-minded, right? And yet, his efforts felt short for his people. Why? I believe it's because he had not yet encountered the God of justice and the God of liberation. And his empowerment came from himself and not from God's presence, right? You see, Moses' falling short in the beginning of Exodus sets up for us a story, and it highlights for us the entire point of Exodus and the entire point of us reading it. I know we know the story, y'all, right? I know we know what's coming, that Moses says, let my people go, and all of that business. But, so consider this, because you know the end of the story. Moses gave his best effort apart from God, and all it did was lead to his alienation and not the people's liberation, right? See, Exodus is the story of Moses encountering God over and over in a way that motivates and empowers him to be a part of the story of the liberation of the Israelite people, right? Let's look at Psalm 127. I'm on my last page. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand, watch in vain. See, God's common grace means that all people have the capacity to do good in our world, even when they don't know him, right? That's God's common grace. But I am convinced that we are at our best in relationship with God and when we are empowered by him, right? Exodus, like I said, is an account of that point. It shows what, happen, what happens when a man, namely Moses, trusts that, trusts that God will show up and then he goes, right? And it's the story of that trust increasing over time, as Moses sees more and more of that power on display. I said I'd get back to this, so I will. Uh, I think if you were to ask most people who the main character of Exodus was, they'd probably say Moses, would, not, would they not? Like, a lot of us, again, I know I've mentioned Prince of Egypt like three times, but a lot of us have seen the movie The Prince of Egypt, and who's the main character? It's Moses, right? But Exodus 1 and 2 make sure that we make no mistake in, in knowing who the main character is, Right? It sets the stage that Moses is not the main character and that he does not have the capacity to be the main character, right? But God does, and Yahweh, God, is our main character. See, I'm so excited for the next few weeks, as we, most of us at least, explore the story together. There are so many hyperlinks and echoes of other scriptures and whatnot, whatnot which are really fun to nerd, about, nerd out about, but there's also an abundance of evidence that shows who our God really is and why he is the worthy main character. I know we just set the stage this morning, but trust me, God has so much for us in the book of Exodus. Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com.